for those of you who are not new, um, you may notice that over the years I've been teaching this Sunday night group, I don't know how many years now. Let me see if I can remember. Mindy must know. How many years? 92? So what are we, yeah, about 14 years? 12 years? Yeah, 12 something. A while. And periodically I find and that there's times when I try to write a Dharma talk and it just does not happen. And today was one of those days. <laughs> I worked at it. And I had the material. I knew, you know, kind of what I wanted to talk about. It just just didn't happen. And I realized that really when I sat with it, right, I'm, you know, I sit a little bit and then I try and write and I sit. And I realized, oh, it's one of those times when I don't have anything to say. And it happens. It's periodically. Again, if you've been here, you, you've seen this, you know. <laughs> So we're just going to sit now for another. <laughs> so then, but but what um, I find helpful is one of two things generally. Is if generally, if you ask questions, if you tell me what you'd like me to talk about, somehow then I find a way to talk about it. It's it's quite interesting. So why don't you think for a minute about what you'd like me to talk about? And the new people, you could think too, even if you haven't seen me not know what to talk about. It's fine. Okay, I think I'll write down a few and then do a talk. Go ahead. Good. We're going to let Rachel stay. I mean, yeah, Rachel. Go ahead. Rachel. Courage in practice. I'm curious what you were going to say last week about impermanence. What was I going to say last week about impermanence? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I have no idea. Do you remember the context? Context? That I was with someone with a Oh, <laughs> that's, I'll talk to you personally. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's a great question. It seems what? There's no silly question in the Dharma. It's actually a great question. How does one fall in love and not be attached? Okay. I think I'm just going to start there. Uh, (laughs) How does one fall in love? Pardon? <laughs> well, no, I don't have anything to say, but it's a great question. So. <laughs> um, well, there's a few different ways I can answer the question, a few different levels to the question. And one level um, 
is to say, well, one can't fall in love without getting attached to some extent. It's generally not how we think about falling in love, and it's not generally how we experience falling in love. And so then the question is, well, what is it to fall in love? You know, what is that? And that's a really fascinating question. You know, what actually happens when we fall in love? And what's the true part of it? And what's the illusory part of it? And because then I think we can really work with it as practice if, we, if we're open to seeing, well, what's the love and what's the intoxication? And is there a difference? Let's not even presume, but let's, let's keep asking it as an inquiry, as a question. Is there a difference between love and intoxication? Yes, you're, you're, you're saying there is. Okay, good. And I think that's true. I think we, we know that, you know, you can take drugs with somebody. You don't necessarily fall in love with them, right? You get intoxicated, but you may not be in love. Love often has a quality of intoxication, but that may not be the love part. Um, and, and to go a little further with that same sense of inquiry then, in terms of practice, it's not, oh, I'm not going to fall in love because I'll get attached. That, that doesn't work. That, it just doesn't work. We, it, and, and there's a principle here that's really important, which is when one sees the values of the Dharma, it's very important to understand, I believe, that we can't impose them mechanically. So one of the values, one of the primary values of the Dharma is don't get an attachment leads to suffering. And it's true. It's totally true. But that doesn't mean we can live like this. And I'm not going to get attached, so I'm not going to fall in love, so I'm not going to, you know, love my work or fall in love with anything, a person or, you know, a sport or an art or whatever it is. If we live like that, that's also a form of suffering. Remember, attachment has two, um, two expressions. One is grasping and one is pushing away. And they're both suffering. So then, for us, the question becomes more, oh, what happens when I fall in love? What's it like to stay mindful? What's it like to stay mindful of the intoxication that comes? What's it like to stay mindful of the attachment that might come? To begin to discern clearly the difference between love and intoxication. Or to discern the difference between love and attachment, because they're not the same thing. They get conflated, right? They they get they they tend to blur one another at times. They 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 start to look like the same thing, but love is not attachment. That's why metta is a really beautiful practice. Metta, loving kindness, love is is not about attachment. It's simply about love. So we don't want to, we don't want to try not to fall in love, or push away falling in love. Well, instead of, instead of having to keep things out so we can be mindful and f- 
free and non-attached. Much more the spirit of practice is to oh, let it let it rip. <laughs> let let it rip. Let's see it. Bring it on. You know. Let's see what this love is. Let's see what happens to the body and heart and mind. If if we have learned or are learning the skills of practice, which is to stay present, to stay awake, to be kind in the process, and then see what happens as we stay present with the impermanent nature of things, the impermanent nature of love, the way love, you know, it's really, you know, you know we all know what falling in love is like. It's totally fun for a day or, <laughs> or, or a week or six months or however long it's like that and then it changes. And so we're, now we're seeing the Dharma in reality. That the Dharma, that things, things are really beautiful for a while and then they change. It's just the nature of things. doesn't mean it's bad. The love can actually deepen often when the... Um, when the intoxication fades, the the any relationship will have a honeymoon period. It can happen at work, you know, with a new job. It can happen with a new partner. It can happen with a new computer. You know, you have that. You know, you've got the new computer you always want. You just love it, and it's great, and it's perfect. And then it starts acting up on you, and it's like, <laughs> you know, and. I don't know if you've heard me say this, but my wife and I teach together sometimes. And no matter what we teach, whenever we teach a retreat, always at the end, people, when people have questions, they're like, they want to know about our relationship, right? That doesn't matter if we're teaching selflessness or impermanence. They, you know, because it's such an important question for us, because it really is an important question, because we're not monastics. We're not practicing as monastics. And the Buddha doesn't teach us to not be in relationship. He actually thinks it's fine for us to be in relationship, be um, sexual, have families. It's fine for, for householders. Um, and so when um, people ask me about, and my wife, about our relationship, the first thing I say is that relationship is dukkha. You know what dukkha is? Right? Dukkha is suffering. But, but it's not just suffering. Dukkha means, dukkha has a much more profound meaning. It means that there is an inherent dissatisfactory quality to life. That life or relationship or a computer or another person won't bring ultimate happiness. That's, that's a very simple understanding of dukkha. It doesn't mean we can't love people fully. The, the teachings of the Brahma Vihara, of the awakened heart, the, the love is considered boundless. But one is not looking for one's happiness in another person. And that's part of the maturation of any relationship, is that a little bit maybe the what changes is we're not looking, we may discover a certain kind of happiness with the person at first but as the relationship matures that's not what we're looking for something something maybe even more more rich is possible where it's not about the other person making us happy 
Maybe it switches. Maybe it's about us making the other person happy. Or maybe it's not about either person making each other happy. Maybe it's about living a life together that's awake. And the richness or satisfaction of that, the pleasure of that, and the joy of being, of knowing somebody intimately. Um, I think it's a good, good day to talk about being a dad, right? It's Father's Day, so I could get to bring my daughter in here. Because it's, it's a very interesting to have a child and watch the relationship and the love and the attachment and the letting go. That's all inherent in having children. It's just inherent. There's no way to have had children without a certain level of attachment. At least, I, you know, I think it's very hard not to. Um, and, then, and then there's also no way to have a good relationship with your child without letting go. Because if you ho- try to hold on to your child um, when they're 15, like you did when they were 15 months, <laughs> that's dukkha. <laughs> and, and they'll help you to understand the dukkha of that, right? Um, <laughs> and, and yet the love only grows deeper, as far as I can tell. The love, maybe even the most... I'll just speak personally. I, I would, could say honestly, the most selfless love I've felt is for my daughter, and and um, and yet there's. It's only about letting go. That's all there is to do as your child gets older and becomes an adult. And you know, it's like. You know, it's just great if they call you on Father's Day. You know, it's like I'm happy. <laughs> because they have their own life and that is what you want for them right you want them to have their own life you want them to have to go into the world and fulfill themselves so that's a little bit about love and attachment but don't don't hold back and i say that but i say that but when i'm saying that really i'm speaking from the perspective of train train yourself in mindfulness and concentration and kindness because then we have the skills we have the tools to sit in the fire of falling in love and not just burn up in a way that's not helpful we may burn up but we may be able to burn up in a way that's very helpful okay so I might as well just answer the questions as they came up what did you ask courage in Practice? Why did you ask that? Seems to take a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. But it doesn't seem it's not often spoken about. Uh-huh. It's true. The Buddha didn't talk about courage much. But the Buddha also came from a certain class and caste and you know, he was a warrior. It was kind of inherent in his in his situation, a certain kind of courage and um, um, wholeheartedness. Uh, maybe, maybe we could speak about courage that way as wholeheartedness. You know, the word is from the French, from the heart. Um, 
And, and one of the qualities that characterizes the Buddha is how wholehearted he was. And this, this will relate a little even of falling in love, kind of. I mean, and you've heard me say it, but it's, if you really track the life of the Buddha, he was a total hedonist at first. I mean, he was an Indian prince and he lived a royal life. And he was wholehearted about it. I mean, totally wholehearted about being a hedonist. And then when he sees, begins to see things that um, create an existential crisis in his life, he sees sickness and um, old age and death. And he sees a, a, a mendicant, a renunciate, a monk. Um, it, it, it so shakes him that he decides to leave, to renounce his riches, his palace, his, his privilege, and go live as an ascetic. And he does it wholeheartedly, fully, totally. He cuts his hair, gives away his jewels, gets rid of his clothes, puts on, um, um, I forget what the word is, but they're rags, basically, a robe made of rags and lives this renunciate life and lives the life of a renunciate to the nth degree, supposedly living on one grain of rice uh, a day and almost dying from his wholeheartedness. And, um, and then he realizes this is not working for what he's looking for, for the freedom he seeks. And then he realizes that there's a middle way between hedonism and asceticism. And, and what happens there is very interesting because his friends, his old ascetic friends, see him starting to take food and eat. And they kind of uh, they, um, denigrate him. They kind of put him down and say, look at, look at Gautama now. He's lost his way. He's a wimp, basically, they say. It's, uh, I forget what the translation is in Pali, but we could translate it like that. And, um, you know, he's lost his courage in some sense. But really, he's found an inner courage, an inner guidance that he can trust, his inner heartfulness. And he trusts it. He trusts himself very much, the Buddha. He trusts, and he's very courageous that way. Now he's not going the way of anybody else. He's going his own way. And um, I think he's a beautiful example of, of courage, actually, of wholeheartedness. Um, and I, I, one of the ways to think about courage in practice is, what are you afraid of? And it's a, it's a really great question, a great contemplation for all of us. What are we afraid of? What scares us? Where does our heart shrink? And then that starts to become the edge of practice or an edge in practice, an area that maybe we want to highlight or look at or investigate or see, well, you know, and see how to do that skillfully. You know, maybe for some of us it's in our work life we shrink. Or maybe for some of us it's around our communication are saying what's true for us. Or maybe for some of us it's around actually just sitting practice. You know, really really taking it on as a practice. Really saying, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to sit every day for a month and see what happens. Or maybe for some of us there's some fear of going on a silent retreat. 
know, it's like, how, how could I be silent for a day or three days or a week or a month or three months? Maybe let's stay with three days. Let's <laughs> start there. But that's one of the, so one of the ways we could think about courage is, well, where, where do we get scared? And to acknowledge our fear is part of, is, is part of being courageous. It's not, courage doesn't happen without fear. There's, there's no courage without fear, really. If you're not afraid, then why would you need courage? And so to acknowledge our courage or our vulnerability or our, our unsurety is actually one step in letting our courage start to come forward. Mindy's going to help me here. <laughs> you usually do. Courage is connected to faith in the Buddhist sense for me. Uh-huh. Stepping into the unknown uh-huh. of not knowing what's uh-huh. going to happen in the next moment. Uh-huh. But having the faith to stay there uh-huh. and having the courage uh-huh. to stay with it. Uh-huh. I think it's particular in long retreats. In long retreats. Um, but it comes up in daily life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but courage to me is really associated with faith. Faith. Yeah, lovely. So Mindy's saying courage is related to faith for her. And part of that is the courage or the faith to stay present, not knowing what's going to happen, whether on long retreat or, or in daily life. So, so I'll, I'll add to that a little bit. Just the, the courage to be present is, takes a certain kind of faith that actually I know you have based on your own practice. It's what's called verified faith in practice. Faith where we've seen that somehow we know, even though we don't know how it's going to happen, we know we can stay present. We don't know how we're going to stay present or even what's going to happen, but somehow there's that faith. And that's a faith that comes with practice. Only it only comes with practice. You can't. You're not going to have that faith because Mindy says, or I say, or, or the Buddha says even that this is a kind of faith that is. Um, it's, it's actually beautiful. It's a beautiful faith because it's really based on your experience, and it's it's the faith that the Buddha had, that he had based on his experience. And it's the faith that his teaching came out of where he could say, see for yourself. Here's what I offer. And the Buddha said this often. He said, here's what I offer. Now come and see for yourself. And it takes some courage because nobody can give it to us. Nobody can give it to us. It's, it's really up to us in that way. Uh-huh. Right. Even though it's verifi- verifiable faith, it still takes courage. Absolutely. Uh huh. Yeah. You spoke about love. Um, where did you say something about the flip side of that? Right. You're talking about love. You said let me kind of let me attach to the rip, but I'm not sure you can say that about a virgin. Oh, no, I would say that about a version. Oh, yeah, let it rip. But what do I mean by let it rip? 
What I mean by let it rip is don't act on it and don't suppress it. Let it rip. Feel it. Sit in the middle of it. Investigate it by being present with it. Don't necessarily believe it. You know, be open to believing it, but don't just believe it. Aversion, if we act on aversion, generally we'll act unskillfully. If we, and by aversion I mean aversion, anger, hatred, you know, intense feeling, repulsion, you know, things like that. Disdain, contempt, cynicism, all those are in the, the heading of aversion. If we just act on those, then that, that's, not, that's not practicing with them. If we try to deny them or repress them or suppress them because we want to be good Buddhists, that doesn't work either. So where does that leave you? It's sitting in the fire of it. Saying, okay, show me what you got. What, what is this aversion? What is this anger? What is this hatred? What does it feel like? What's it like in the body? What's the narrative that goes along with it? Why do I believe it? Who who am I taking myself to be that I'm believing it? You know, what's the identity here that's believing it? And these don't necessarily have to come as cognitive questions, although they can. But just to sit in the fire of the actual experience will purify it. If, If you can stay present within the experience... It, it will self-liberate sooner or later. It won't self-liberate on our timeline. Right? Like, I, you know, I've got 20 minutes and I want this anger to go away. It doesn't work like that. That's where the courage comes in, says Mindy. Okay. 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 Right. So what about being shut out by a loved one, brother, sister, father, mother? It's dukkha. It's suffering. And how to work with the suffering. That's why the that's why the practice, that's why developing the skills is so important. Because we don't know what life will bring us. We, we don't know. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. And will. We live so much in the illusion of, of permanence or of consistency. And we have no idea what's going to happen. Have you noticed? Have you noticed the world seems even more impermanent than ever? Especially in our country, I, I believe we've had a tremendous amount of security in this country that most countries haven't lived with. And as the world gets smaller, it's not, it's not the same. It's changing. So then the question is, how do we work with somebody who doesn't want to relate to us, basically, who we care about? Um, <coughs> From a practice perspective, the first thing to do is is notice your reaction. Probably the most common reaction would be feel hurt and sad or bereft in some way. And then to learn to apply the skills of mindfulness to actually stay present with one's feeling. To see that 
to see the, the Dharma within that experience. The Dharma meaning the feeling is not who you are, that the feeling is impermanent, and that there may be the possibility of having the feeling, the truth of that feeling, and finding a space or a ground or a presence that's not bound to that feeling. But it actually means feeling the feeling. Doesn't mean, oh, we're just going to jump over it. You can do that at times. It's a kind of spiritual bypassing you can do. But it doesn't, it doesn't offer a depth to one's practice to do that. It, it may be helpful sometimes to actually do that. But as we mature in practice, again, at least from my perspective, it means really sitting with the reality of our human experience in order to let it liberate, in order to see the whole thing and to be with the whole thing and see that we can be with all of it, with all of human experience. I was reading, oh, I think I have some here. Maybe I can use some of the talk tonight. Some of the talk that I didn't write. I will, I'll read you something if I can find it. This is from Eddie Hillison. Eddie Hillison. Anybody know the name of her book? Eddie Hillison? She was, I believe, a Dutch woman who died in the concentration camps. Very passionate woman, writing about her life. Let's see if I can find it. Oh, there's so many things here. She says, she's quite an amazing woman. She says, the misery here is quite terrible. And yet, late at night, when the day has slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire and then time and again it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it. That's just the way it is, like some elementary force, the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent. This is in the middle of the camps. And it, she, she's just a beautiful spirit. She says, the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Against every new outrage and every fresh horror, we shall put up one more piece of love and goodness, drawing strength from within ourselves. This is the possibility for us as human beings, to actually find our strength within ourselves, with our sorrows, with what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and sorrows. And then the last, there's another quote here that somebody gave me. It's, she's leaving on the transport and um, she throws out a postcard found by the farmers. It says, we have left the camp singing. And that's, that was the last communication from her. So she was a natural born mystic, really, Eddie Helsom. Um, but but that spirit is in all of us. That possibility of human maturity is in all of us. And one of the beautiful things about Buddhism, I, I believe, is that it's such a commonsensical training of the heart and mind. 
It's actually, there's a lot of really kind of magical and wonderful things about Buddhism, but there's something so down to earth about just teaching us to actually be here. Just to be here in this human body with this heart of humanity with all the troubles and all the goodnesses of being a human being, falling in love, breaking up. That's the whole show, right? <laughs> you know, heaven and hell. And that, and that we can find our ground with all of it is, is possible. And then, you know, your question implies many other possibilities you know, parts of Buddhist practice, compassion for yourself, first of all, and then maybe for the person who's, you know, shutting you out. Seeing through the eye of wisdom will mean partly seeing their suffering. That that's a, usually an expression of a lot of suffering. And then to see that often will naturally bring one's compassion. Okay. How can we bring our practice alive through action? How can we bring our practice alive through action? Act. <laughs> Act? What do you want to do? Well, the idea of faith without works is dead. So what do we do to uh-huh. our belief system and share with others? Faith without action. Say that again. Faith without works is dead. Faith, faith. It's not a Buddhist quote, so I'm just trying to get that. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, there's a few different ways to think about that from a Buddhist perspective. The first, the first emphasis that the Buddha would make would be to practice, to actually practice, to take one's faith and practice. And then I, I, I think the Buddha would say that it's natural, it becomes natural to act. That the goal isn't just to stay on the cushion. The goal is to begin to clarify, to get clear, to see clearly, well, who are we? Who are we actually? What are we actually? Where is suffering and where is freedom right here? Where are we caught, identified with the body of fear, with the small sense of self, with an idea about who we are based on history and patterning and conditioning and you know various difficulties that we've experienced you know growing up and where how do we learn to come into contact with the part of ourselves that is free of that that is not bound by that and then when that freedom is is discovered I, I think it's very natural just to act that freedom acts. It's not even so much we have to do something to act. Freedom, you know, it's very natural. If somebody falls down, you reach and give them a hand. That's a natural action. I, I'm, I'm a, well, there's two ways to go here. There's two, two, two ways we can think about it. One is to first of all see that freedom acts naturally. And for some people it'll mean compassion. For some people, it'll mean study and, and, uh, and scholarly work. For some people, it'll mean um, um, engaged in politics. That the actions, there's no prescription here. Partly what freedom means is we can actually trust, we have the faith and the courage to trust our hearts and to act. 
And then there's a second um, part to this, which I think you've also implied, which is that there is a way to practice action to also pull freedom forward. In one sense, we're free and then we act. In another, well, maybe we're not totally free, but we act and it lets freedom come alive, too. And I think they're both helpful. And so then there are many different ways to think about where you're drawn to act. What, what moves you? What, what speaks to you? And what would be good for your practice? Which is a really fine way to think about acting. You know, what if, for some people it might be working in a homeless shelter. For some people it might be Zen hospice project. For some people it might mean I'm going to act I'm going to see what it's like to really practice right speech with my partner as, as an action, or at work. Or maybe it's getting involved in politics and seeing, well, what does it mean to be mindful, or what does it mean to be engaged in politics from a Buddhist perspective? Yeah. The one caveat I would make here is to be very mindful of when we're acting, of what our motivation is for acting. That's a very important part of practice. Because generally, we'll have mixed motivations. And it's good, it'll be important to see the mix. It doesn't mean we shouldn't act, but we want to see when the motivation is more pure or less pure. And it's not to have any heavy ju any judgment at all about any of our impure. By impure I mean, uh, I mean this. I mean sometimes we'll act because we want to be seen a certain way or we want to be acknowledged a certain way or thought of a certain way or how great it'll say that, oh, now I work at the Zen hospice, which I used to work at. I used to tell people I worked at Zen hospice and I would always get all these strokes, right? They were like, oh, you're so great that you're doing this, and you, how can you do that? And, da, da, da. and I'm like, they have no idea what a gift it is to work in Zen Hospice. But, but you would get this, and you know, you feel it. It's like, okay, you know, I work in Zen Hospice. So, it, so it's not to judge that, but it's to bring it within the, in the field of mindfulness so we're not bound by it. We're not... Um, we're not attached to it. We're not in the thrall of it. It can also self-liberate our need to be seen in that way. Okay. And there's, a, there's a group of us now in the Sangha trying to come together exactly for that with the mm -hmm. Dharma Service Project mm -hmm. to kind of identify the little areas where in the community we can get together and do service in a very mindful way. So did everybody hear that? Did you hear that in back? Yes. Are you awake back there? Or <laughs> okay. Okay. So you could see Paul if you want to talk about the Dharma Service Project after the meeting. Great. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, motivation and energy as it relates to um, attachment to the outcome of, of projects or the actions that you're involved in if you are 
Good question. So if you're not attached to the outcome, where does the energy come to get stuff done? That's a good question. Um, it comes partly, um, it comes from seeing that there's a need. That there's a need to do something, and so you do it. But it's not to get it done in a way, but, but partly we want to pay attention to how we're doing it while we're getting it done. Do we get graspy around it? Do we get tight around it? Do we get scared around it? Do we have to have it done today or tomorrow? And you know, some things, of course, we have deadlines. But, um, you know, it's a great place to watch, to study the self. Because the self will come up. You know, how do we, how have we been trained to do things? Right? I gotta do it right, I've gotta get it done on time, it's gotta be done like this, if it's not like this, it's no good. You know, that's not may not exactly be true. Maybe okay if it's not done perfectly. You know, but if it you know, if it gets done in a somewhat timely manner, it might be okay. It might challenge our ideas about what it means to get something done. Then the other piece is I'm I'm gonna say this, it's a beautiful understanding. Realization is effort without desire. Realization, actually the full quote goes, realization, neither general nor specific, is effort without desire. And I, I, I'll do my best on the rest of the quote. So realization, neither general nor specific, is effort without desire. Exactly what you're asking about, right? Effort without desire. Um, Clear water all the way to the bottom, a fish swims like a fish. Blue sky, transparent throughout, a bird flies like a bird. <laughs> so that's really the answer to your question. <laughs> but you'll have to sit with that a little bit, okay? It's a beautiful, this is from Zen Master Dogen. And it, it's really, it's called um, um, selfless effort. Selfless effort. When there's no self there, one does, one makes one eff one's effort, but one is not exactly attached to the outcome. You know, you do the best you can. And he's also pointing to a certain kind of naturalness, right? clear water all the way to the bottom. A fish swims like a fish. What kind of effort is that? A bird flies like a bird. What kind of effort is that? Total effort, right? You ever see a bird fly? I, I actually, just for the first time, I saw a bird fly recently. I mean, you know, I'd seen bird fly before, but no, I really saw a bird fly. I finally, I saw this bird fly and I realized, oh my God, they're not flying with their wings. They use their wings, but actually they're flying. It's their whole body. It's their whole body. They, they're so into that experience that there's no bird there. There's just the experience of flying. That's when you're free of the outcome.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.